Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Welcome Food and Faith Podcast. We are excited to be bringing you a series of four podcasts that were recorded at the Food and Faith Gathering held in November at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland. A little bit of the background of this event. Uh, for years, uh, the Keep and Till had hosted this event and called it Headwaters. Um, and this year, we're really excited to partner with the podcast um, to be bringing uh, these speakers and these ideas to a much larger audience. But we had started the we had, we had started this program saying, you know, for years I had had to get on get on a plane or get in a car to go engage with these ideas at various locations. And we said, well, wait a second, why can't we have these conversations here in our hometown? And so we're committed to local food, so we figured being committed to local learning made a lot of sense as well. And so we started this event, and we're really excited to be able to partner with the podcast to bring these events to you all today. And you might think like me, well, I don't live in Maryland, and it's not a local event for me. I was glad to get in my car and drive all day to get there. Um, but we are interested in the future in hosting local events in various parts of the country, partnering with different churches and organizations. So if that piques your interest, please feel free to reach out and we'll take that into consideration as we continue to develop both places for local conversations as well as national conversations. And so over the course of the next four podcasts, you're going to be hearing from some people that are familiar to you and some new faces as well. And so as part of this, we're going to be releasing podcasts from me, Heber Brown, Dave Baldwin, and Karen Mann. Karen Mann is someone that you have heard from before on the pod. And whenever we hear from her, we are blessed with her wisdom and the depth that she brings to this work at the intersection of food and faith, theology, and ecology. Reverend Karen Mann is the pastor in the United Church of Christ and has worked for a number of years as a hospital chaplain before following her passion for food to the farm. The first stop was as the meat manager for a network of farms for refugees. Given that she didn't meet any of the job qualifications, she's pretty sure she got the job by describing how much she loves turnips, which she may refer to in this talk. She is now settled on her own farm in Central Virginia, Heart and Bones Hollow, with her partner and her two kids. She also runs a dinner church where, in her rural community where she brings together the farming community and the faith community around worship and a meal. You can follow her on Facebook at Heart and Bones Hollow or visit their website, Heart and Bones Hollow. You can also read some of Karen's reflections on faith and farming at carrotseedfaith.com. But right now, we invite you to open your heart and mind and listen to the words of Reverend Karen Mann. So I sat on a bench in a hidden way community garden with Susan one afternoon. She, after reviewing my resume and telling me a little bit about the job as market manager, as Anna shared, uh, she sat down my resume and she looked at me and she said, now you don't have any of the qualifications that we're looking for in this position. No sales experience, no agricultural background, no previous experience working with refugees. And I, frankly, I'm not sure we want somebody from a Christian ministry background in this position. So tell me, why should we hire you for this job? I had figured this question was coming. I knew that I wasn't qualified, but I was eager to get my foot into the farming world. You see, my love for all things local food had been building for years. 
I wasn't raised in a particularly foodie family, uh, no farming background, but I had been slowly educating myself, expanding my knowledge of and love for farming and food. And all along the way, my faith was intricately tied, tied to that love. It was the first taste of cilantro that really blew my mind, expanding the very limited universe of my taste buds. The bright, fresh clearness that cilantro brings to a salsa is tantalizing to my tongue. I know some people don't like it. But I thought, what had I been missing my whole life? And I began to wonder what other tastes and textures and treasures lay waiting for me to discover in the world of food. And so my appetite for foods became insatiable. I collected cookbooks and cooking magazines with abandon, and it wasn't enough to just try a few new recipes and enter them into some sort of rotation. I had to try all the things. I think in the 20 years that I've been cooking for myself, I've only repeated a recipe a handful of times. So it wasn't long before I was a regular at the farmer's market and then a CSA member at an organic farm. And uh, if you don't know that, it's community-supported agriculture. And CSA suited me so well because every week, a new vegetable adventure arrived in my share box. And it was here that I first discovered the Hakurai turnips. Joe, the farmer, grew these perfectly round, perfectly white, golf ball-sized turnips. Their flesh is the optimal balance of crisp, juicy crunch. Their flavor is cloyingly sweet with just a hint of earthiness, not at all like their very earthy, sometimes bitter cousin, the purple top turnip. These turnips are best eaten raw. Usually I slice them on a salad or quarter them and dip them in a hummus or maybe a spicy uh, guacamole, brightened with cilantro, of course. Uh, if you do cook them, you've got to blister them in a hot skillet and allow them to glaze with just a touch of honey to enhance their sweetness. And it makes for the perfect early spring or late fall side dish. So when Susan asked why she should hire me, all I could think was, let me tell you about how much I love turnips. So since getting that job, I've spent most of my Saturdays and Wednesdays over the last nine years, sitting at one farmer's market or another, talking to people about food and trying to sell them some too. I love talking to people about food. From introducing people to unfamiliar but delightful foods from other countries to waxing poetic over our shared love of the perfect summer tomato. I love the passion that food brings out in people. My Burmese friend, Ignatius, grew tons of roselle every year. It's related to hibiscus. And I love nothing better than handing a bit of that five-fingered, dark, leafy green over to a customer and saying, just try it. <clears throat> Their eyes would invariably light up with surprise and usually delight as the powerfully bright citrus flavor hit their mouth. And then we launch into a conversation about the cultural uses or recipe suggestions or how interesting the world of food is. And sometimes they would buy a bunch and sometimes not, but they always left with their mind expanded just a little bit to new possibilities in the world of dark leafy greens. And I, the evangelist of food, was filled with satisfaction at having once again shared the good news. 
Food is delicious and surprising and filled with possibilities, and our plates are only limited by our willingness to try new things. When Sam asked me about speaking to y'all today, one of the questions he posed was, why are people hungry? So for nine years, I've been talking to people about food at the market, and the answers I see to that question are many and varied. First, I think people are hungry because there's a deep disconnect between our culture and our food system. One early spring Saturday, I set up at the market in my small rural town in Virginia. The town has about 600 residents, and it is surrounded on all sides by agriculture, from the big conventional bean corn operations to a handful of smaller organic farms. Our little market there is thriving, even with a limited population to draw from, and you can find pretty much everything you need at the market. It was my first season vending there with stuff I had grown on my own farm, and I was so proud to stock my table that day with a bounty of greens, kale, collards, chard, lettuce. Uh, I probably had roots too, radishes, and my precious huckeray turnips. Standing just to the left of my table, but in full view of the vegetable bounty, a couple chatted for a little bit, and finally I heard the woman say with exasperation to her husband, I'm sorry I brought you out here today. It doesn't look like anyone has any produce. What she meant, of course, was no one had corn or tomatoes or squash or cucumbers yet. And I know this because all through April and May, every year, this is what people ask me for, as if the first warm day of spring draws tomatoes forth magically from the ground. We are so removed from our food system that very few people know anything at all about the seasonality of food. To be sure the education is getting out there, it seems each summer I hear from more people who haven't eaten a fresh tomato since last summer, or at the very least they acknowledge that a grocery store tomato in winter is no good. I think corn and peaches also garner some recognition of seasonality. But I don't think folks recognize the delight of a late fall carrot. I love the carrots up there. Uh, that's been through a frost or two, causing the starches to convert to sugar and delighting your taste buds with the sweetness. Of course, you can grow a carrot in spring and even summer, but it's more of a hearty, earthy root. Delicious in its own right, but a fall carrot? Now that is sublime. Same goes for dark leafy greens. The spinach I planted last week and will over winter will be so sweet in spring that it will startle your taste buds. One of the markets I worked at in Atlanta was in the smaller city of Decatur, right beside Atlanta, a very urban area, but one with lots of ties to and interest in sustainable agriculture. A number of Decatur restaurants would uh, source their ingredients from local farms. There were many urban farms that dotted the city landscape. And across all of Atlanta, you can find a farmer's market pretty much every day of the week. In many ways, our customers at the Decatur market were highly educated about local foods and highly motivated to support local farmers. But still, you didn't have to look far to find that that disconnect still existed for those customers. I, uh, at that market, the guy next to me sold eggs and goat cheese. And one day he had a woman come up to him and very seriously say, oh, are those goat eggs? 
I often display at my farm, farm stand, pictures of the various animals that we've had on our farm. And I can't tell you how many folks, meat eaters, not vegetarians, not vegans, meat eaters, tell me that the pictures turn them off. They don't want to have to think about their pork having once been a pig. We can certainly have a debate about whether eating meat is morally good or bad. We can debate about whether animal agriculture contributes to or does not contribute to our ecological crisis. But if you choose to eat meat, I think it's imperative that you not only consider that your meat was once a living, breathing being, but also considered how it was raised and cared for and slaughtered. This disconnect, I believe, is one of the biggest problems and leads people to turn a blind eye to the abuses and distortions that make conventional animal agriculture an environmental and moral disaster. When you couple all these disconnects with all the confusing, conflicting messages about what we should or should not eat, to me, it's no wonder that people are hungry and disconnected. So the second reason I think that people are hungry has to do with affordability and accessibility. Over the nine years, I've sold at six different farmers markets. Each of those markets were very different in terms of their customer base, the types of vendors that sold there, and the community in which they were situated. Five of those were urban markets, only one in a rural area. Four of them were in middle to upper in income areas, but only two in lower income areas. Only one was in an area that met the definition for a food desert. Only one whose regular customer base was anything other than white folks. Every market accepted EBT SNAP benefits, but in Georgia, thanks to a grant called Wholesome Wave, EBT SNAP dollars were doubled at all the markets, and we regularly had customers use their EBT at the market. In Virginia, they're not doubled, and I have yet in four years to have somebody use EBT at the market. Because let's be honest, shopping at the farmer's market is often more expensive than the grocery store. Market prices around my place tend to run comparable to or just slightly higher than the local chain grocery store. For most folks, that puts local produce and meats out of reach, except for the occasional treat. I serve on a committee in my town looking at how to improve access to health for our rural region. In one of our meetings, the local primary care provider commented that one of her patients, struggling with multiple health, health issues, had told her he was eating ramen and hot dogs because he couldn't afford to pay his electricity bill. For folks struggling to stretch their food dollars as far as possible, for folks struggling to stretch every dollar as far as possible, a $1.49 pack of hot dogs and a 99 cent pack of ramen is many more calories and meals than the same pound of tomatoes that $2.50 can buy. Even without addressing the affordability, accessibility is still an issue. And I feel like rural folks often get left out when talking about accessibility. Perhaps it's our location in agricultural areas that makes it seem like we should have more access. But the vast majority of agricultural products, if they're destined for human consumption at all, are shipped out of the area in which they're grown. For instance, I live in a rural county outside of Charlottesville. Though our geography is tiny, our population is slightly larger than the surrounding counties, thanks to a neighborhood in one corner that serves as a bedroom community to Charlottesville. Nearly 40% of the county population lives in that neighborhood. The vast majority of businesses, restaurants, all the medical services, the only grocery store, and the only traffic light in the county are located around that 
mostly white, neighborhood. The eastern half of the county is all very rural, with almost no services or businesses in this area. Folks in the far southeast corner of the county, mostly African American, have no grocery stores within a 10 mile radius. I know similar racial disparities exist in urban areas. Um, there's also no markets in this area of the county. And some folks have tried, but without a steady customer base, the farmers can't sustain being at a market there. Which leads to my third reason why I think people are hungry, and that's that many small farms can't stay in business. And all of our agricultural production and power is becoming concentrated in the hands of large agribusiness corporations. This takes the power to feed and support their, themselves away from local communities. My first two seasons in Virginia, I sold at the market that's seven miles from my house that I told you about in that small rural town of 600. Although I had developed some loyal customers, I felt like it just wasn't making ends meet on the farm. I would go home at the end of the day with too much unsold produce and not enough cash. Nearby Charlottesville has a huge market on Saturdays with hundreds of vendors and thousands of customers. In one Saturday at the city market, they get more customers than come through Scottsville in uh, an entire season. So going into my third season, I decided to alternate between the city market in Charlottesville and the small market in my hometown of Scottsville. Every week that I was at city market, I would get messages from at least one customer, sometimes many, wondering where I was and telling me that they missed me being there. And I deeply missed feeding my own community. But what really tipped my hand was an encounter I witnessed at the stand next to me. So this stand sold primarily cut flowers. And I've got nothing against growing or selling flowers. They're beautiful. They would, their stand was gorgeous. Buckets filled with bursting blooms, spilling out into the aisleways. And if the visuals weren't enough, the aromas would really draw the customers in. Every Saturday, folks would flock to their stand to choose a few stems to make their own bouquet. One Saturday, a woman was sorting through the single stems trying to put, put together a bouquet of her own, and her hands were filled with flowers, and at a dollar or more per stem, it must have been a bouquet for something extra special. When her husband, boyfriend, I don't know, a, a man in scrubs who seemed to know her walked up with a tray of wheatgrass from one of the other vendors down the aisle, and without even looking at him, she glanced at the offering in his hand, turned back to the flowers in her own hand, and began to berate him and loudly for buying the wrong wheatgrass. Never once did she make eye contact with him. The guy's face fell and he walked away. And uh, clearly they've got issues. <laughs> but I, I thought to myself, is this what I want to be a part of? I got into farming because I wanted to feed people. People who were hungry for food, for community, for connection to the earth and its cycles. I got into farming because I was hungry for all of those same things, plus belonging to a place and the people in that place. I didn't belong at the city market. I belonged in Scottsville. So I quit that market and went back to every Saturday in Scottsville. Now y'all, I'm lucky. I have a partner whose off-farm job keeps us afloat, so I can make an ideological move like that committing to a lower paying, less busy market, again with the accessibility issue. Small farmers like myself often struggle to make ends meet, struggle to keep the farm in business. 
every year, usually during the winter, I hear of another farming friend who has had to make the tough decision to go out of business. I brace myself for, for it because the emotional toll on those of us who stay is real. I can't speak for others, but I don't see it as more market share, share opening, but as ominous writing on the wall. These days, even the big guys are going out of business rapidly. We hear about the dairy industry collapsing and the trade wars that are damaging the farming industry. Even on my own farm this year, I've had to make the tough decision to stop raising pigs. We've had pork at the market for the last three years, raising a heritage breed in the woods on our farm. While the pork has been very popular at market and folks are always clamoring for it when we run out, when I sit down and crunch the numbers, it just doesn't work. I would have to raise my prices beyond what the market will bear in order to make ends meet, again with the affordability issue. Combine that with some health issues this year and I finally had to let go of that and focus my energy on vegetable production. Fortunately, one of our sows, Mickey, has found a home here with Sam and family. Farmers often have to decide between staying local and feeding their communities or heading for bigger urban markets in order to stay in business. Many of us can't afford to buy the items we sell. The Food Modernization Act has created new regulations that pose burdens on small to mid-sized farms. Farm subsidies often favor the large corporate farms, usually with crops that are shipped out of the area. These things take away vital financial support of the farms that are feeding their local communities. Now there are other issues at play in why people are hungry. Food waste, diet confusion, mixed messages about agricultural impact on climate change, socioeconomic and racial inequities in our food system, and others can speak to some of those more eloquently than I, but these three are the ones I most often see from my vantage as a small farmer. People are disconnected from their food. Accessibility and affordability are major barriers, and too many small farms can't stay in business. So what does faith have to do with all of this? After I answered Susan's question about why she should hire me, she still wanted me to address how my ministry background would help or hinder me in the position. And it was clear that I needed to reassure her that I wasn't out to proselytize the farmers of differing faith backgrounds, and I wasn't. Instead, I feel my faith compels me to care about the everyday needs of people's lives, especially around food. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. All of our lives revolve around food or the lack of food. Our very existence depends on us eating every day, with the exception of fasting now and then. If we can't find God in the midst of this most basic aspect of human existence, then where can we find God? I want us to think about how churches can begin to awaken a sense of the spirituality of food in our congregations. Our Christian scriptures are filled with agricultural stories and metaphors, but I think mostly these fall flat for today's hearers of the word. Preachers, often with no agricultural knowledge or experience, try to explain these stories with things they've read in commentaries, but what if instead of trying to explain, we made these stories come alive? really drawing people into the tastes and smells and sounds and textures of the stories, bringing food into our worship, even if not a full meal. We already do this with communion, the bread and the wine, although I think mostly they are incidental to the liturgy. 
But what if we put more emphasis on the wheat and the grapes with beautiful bread that tastes good and looks good and smells good and draws people in and a real appealing option for people who are gluten-free? And we encourage people to really eat and drink of it, to take in the taste, to savor it, to honor it for the gift of the wheat and the sweetness of the grapes. And in so doing, to experience the richness of the mystery that it's in these simple foods where we encounter the divine in Jesus Christ, that we are pulled into the body of Christ and spilled spiritually and physically with God's grace. And what if we elevated other foods in our worship, sharing figs when we read all the stories about fig trees, or tasting vinegar on Good Friday, or pitchers and cups filled with cold water when we talk about the woman at the well? The freedom around food is part of what I love about doing dinner church. In one of our recent services, my partner Bones sang Carrie Newcomer's song, Sanctuary, which has a line about sprigs of rosemary. So we had rosemary on the table, and in our bread, and the smell, and the taste, and the beauty of the music permeated our space and our worship as we read a song about finding sanctuary in God. And when we read about Jesus sharing a meal with his disciples, breaking bread with them, we also break bread and share in a meal together. And the scripture is not just a story with metaphors about food. It comes alive as we share and consume it together. But you don't have to do dinner church in order to elevate food in your worship. Preaching at a traditional church one time in the summer, I filled the altar with mounds of tomatoes and cucumbers and flowers from the farm, and I asked people to take them home with them, but only if they took enough to share with a neighbor. And one woman took the flowers to a church member who was in the hospital, but another woman took some tomatoes and cucumbers and she shared them with a refugee neighbor. And the neighbor shared with her some food she had grown in her own garden. And they had a meal together, and a new relationship was formed. We can preach and teach about the role food plays in our lives and the role agriculture plays in climate change. And we can draw connections between the liturgical calendar and the seasons of the year, drawing on and reviving ancient feast days from when the world was more in touch with the agricultural year. One of my favorites is rogation days. You can still see the vestige of this in some denominational calendars. They call it Rural Life Sunday. Uh, it is typically celebrated beginning the sixth Sunday of Easter. Rogation derives from the word, Latin word rogare, meaning to ask. And it's a festival of three days, and it's meant to be a time of asking for God's blessing in different areas of our common life. The first being in our farms and agriculture. A special worship service is held called Beating the Bounds, where the priest would lead parishioners around the boundaries of the parish, stopping at boundary markers, farms, gardens, streams, etc., to ask God's blessing on the land, the labor, the livestock, and the harvest. Now, y'all might not be able to beat the bounds of your community, but what if people brought in the plants and seeds they intended to plant that year to be blessed in worship? Or there was a special blessing of the farmers and gardeners or extend it to all food workers in your community. I'm sure we all can come up with even more creative ideas, but how do we begin to awaken this sense of spirituality in our food to create a love for food and its potential for being a place where we meet God? Because I think when we awaken that, 
when the disconnect I talked about earlier would begin to fall away. My experience has always been that when people begin to love food, to really cherish the flavors and the textures and the experience of food, they begin to care about where it came from, how it was grown, and how the people who grew it were treated. If you walk away with nothing else from me today, I hope you walk away with a desire to fall in love with food, to pause over your next meal and ponder how you might meet God in that meal. I love food. I love everything about food. I love growing food and cooking food and eating food and sharing food. And when that passion brings me closer into relationship with the one who made me and my food, that's a holy moment. But fostering a spirituality around food isn't going to solve the fact that many people, many, many people can't access or afford good food, and we still have too many small farms going out of business. Much of farming literature is rooted in the lies of self-sufficiency and sustainability. I like to notice the books on people's shelves when I go to their house, and almost every farmer, gardener, homesteader I know has John Seymour's book, The Self-Sufficient Life and How to, Rape, How to Live It, on their shelf. The book is a quick skim of hundreds of skills one can learn in order to live a self-sufficient life, from planting and harvesting crops to how to make tools, raise animals, preserve the harvest, generate your own power, to a myriad of homestead crafts. And one gets the impression when reading this book that one person or one family unit can and should learn as many of these skills as possible because the good life, the self-sufficient life, is a do-it-yourself project. Now don't get me wrong, I love a good DIY project, but I'm pretty sure a self-sufficient life is not sustainable. And even then, I'm not sure we should be sustaining our current independence-driven culture. At the beginning of the season, I had a herd of 17 pigs, a milk cow and her calf, goats, chickens, a half-acre market garden, plus several community commitments, and I'm trying to plant a church. Although my partner helps out when she can, the primary burden of running this operation falls to me. In March, my back started to hurt. Soon, the cluster headaches came. By Mother's Day, I was in the ER and soon found out that I had Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Blah, blah, blah for me. The point is, my own lie of self-sufficiency came crashing down. Any one of those things could have caused me to close the farm. And I have scaled way back. But I was able to continue by moving away from self-sufficiency and toward community. And blessedly, our community rallied around us. Meals, childcare, rides to the doctor, help feeding the livestock, friends weeding the garden, church folks who took my produce to market for me, a doctor who goes above and beyond to help me get healthy, a friend who offered free massage. I may have put the seeds in the ground this year, but my community fed and watered and nurtured me and the farm. Consider Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in, according, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts 
according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is, it is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. If it is farming, then farm faithfully with great care for the earth. One way the church could participate in the food and faith movement is by helping to remember farmers into the body of Christ. Not every church is going to be a farm church or a dinner church, but every church can reach out to the farmers and growers in their community. And this year I couldn't have survived without my church. I'm lucky that I belong to a church of which my dinner church is a part, that honors and celebrates the work I do as a farmer. They accept me in my grubby farm jeans, hold my cracked and stained hands as we join together in prayer. They ask me about the farm, pray for me when the weather breaks my farming heart, visit the farm, patronize my stand at the farmer's market, and they delight in my goats taking center stage every year at the nativity. And they help, they help with hands for weeding and planting, sharing my farm's posts on Facebook, celebrating publicly when my farm achieves something, providing meals and childcare. These things may sound small, but to the small-time farmer like me, these are the difference between being able to farm again next year and having to shut the farm down. And small farmers are often best positioned to reach the folks in their own community who need better access to affordable food. Farmers are a generous lot. I would rather spend my day with farmers than clergy any day of the week. <laughs> they often donate a good bit of their food to food banks, neighbors, community organizations, though I'm definitely not advocating a charity model because I think farmers ought to get paid for their hard work. But thinking of in about accessibility and how difficult it is to sustain markets in underserved areas, rural or urban, consider the impact that one church could have on such a market. In my own experience, my Wednesday market would not be worth attending for me, but there are a dozen or so folks from my church who come every week, visit me regularly, and their purchases make it sustainable for me to stay in that market. If your church isn't located in an underserved area, it might mean committing to traveling further afield. In Charlottesville, for example, I often suggest to folks that they attend the market hosted by the International Rescue Committee, where our local refugee residents sell their produce. Or else, hit up one of the smaller markets on the outskirts of town. If farmers are able to stay at smaller markets, then access improves. Farming is hard risky work. The physical, emotional, financial toll can be great, but when a farmer's work is valued and honored and supported, there's no greater reward. And as one who has felt valued and supported this year, I can testify to its power in my life, in my family's life, and into the life of my community. My community is fed when the church supports me. Now, I must confess that I feel a little unqualified to be sharing the stage with the folks you'll hear from next. I'm not an expert. I don't know facts and figures about food justice or environmental issues. I'm not an innovator either, not really, not out there on the edge creating new and exciting ministries. I'm not sure that I speak all that articulately to the theological underpinnings of this work, but what I am, what I am, 
is someone who loves farming and food, someone who loves farmers, someone who, for better or worse, loves the church. My passion for food is what got me that first job, and it's what keeps me going. I've shared some funny and a little bit critical stories from the market, but I also find great hope there. Folks who skeptically, reluctantly pay $9 a pound for my pork chops, but come back the next week believers. A young kid who dragged his mom to the market after soccer because he cut these tiny cucumbers from me last year, and they were so good. Tim, who comes to every market I attend and often buys every tomato or bunch of basil that I have on the table. Scott, who's always delighted when he shows up late for market, but I've saved him a bag of lettuce. Marnie and Justin, God bless them, who moved to Germany but still managed to message me regularly to tell me how much they miss my chorizo and ají dulce peppers. The customers who show up every week rain or shine, excited and eager. And of course, all the folks from my church who come and support me regularly. These are the moments that keep me going. These are the moments that fuel my passion for this work. When I feel too small or too insignificant or too unqualified for the job, this is what I remind myself. So perhaps you also feel unqualified intimidated by the enormity of our food system issues or environmental situation. But I'm here to tell you that you don't need to be an expert. The world, your community, the church need your passion, whatever it is. We need more evangelists of the good news that what we eat is intricately tied with our faith. More folks who can awaken the spirituality of food. More folks who can remember farmers into the body of Christ. More folks who can feed their communities with good food. Because it's those folks, you folks, who can and will transform our world. excited that there are seminaries across the country who are asking these questions related to food and faith and theological well-being. One example of this is Memphis Theological Seminary, which is currently accepting applications for the Doctorate of Ministry in Land, Food, and Faith Formation. This is a dynamic and innovative low-residency program that's open to students who are passionate about the intersections of ministry with agricultural practices, food justice, care for the land, and the role of faith communities in both rural and urban settings. If you are engaged in some of the conversations we've had here on the pod with our guests like Reverend Dr. Heber Brown and Reverend Naria Love Parrish, these are examples of some of the conversations and instructors that are involved in this program. This is an opportunity for people from all different walks of life to come together and explore the intersection of theology and ecology of food and faith. The first two-week residency for this new cohort at Memphis Theological Seminary takes place in June of 2020, and applications are currently being accepted until April 30th. For more information and to apply, you can visit memphisseminary.edu slash landfoodfaith. That's memphisseminary.edu slash landfoodfaith. Yet another place to go and engage in the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, 
Plain Song Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.